Thank you, worship team, Lynette, so much. That, uh, that hymn just speaks so beautifully of the love that surrounds all of us, that ocean of love that we all find ourselves swimming in today. And so as we are begin, as we're continuing a series on relationships, we know our primary relationship is with God Himself, this God of deep, eternal compassion, and that all of our other relationships become deep and meaningful and healthy as we let the love of God flow through us, learning to walk in His love and give it away. Last week, we were challenged to learn to listen. Today, our challenge is to learn to care. Pastor Dan talked about saving faith and living faith last week. What does real living faith look like in caring relationships? We're in the book of James, and I love just how down-to-earth he is, how practical he is, a straight shooter. If you like, he's got Nike faith. Let's just do it. The fact is, though, we talk a lot about faith, But as someone has said, after all is said and done, more is said than done. Let's get real. Talking faith is good, but walking faith is even better. Sometimes we say things, but we don't necessarily mean them. Things like, I got stuck in traffic. The check is in the mail. That's the next thing on my to-do list. If you're of a certain age, read my lips, no new taxes, or I'll cancel the GST. I'm not going to come to any more contemporary politicians or I'll get in all kinds of trouble. But I'll pray about that. We'll still be good friends. Let's do lunch, or my all-time favorite, this sermon will be 30 minutes long. Sometimes we focus on faith about we want to make sure we get to heaven when we die, and that's good. That's an important consideration. That's important that we have that kind of saving faith. But for James, that's not his particular concern. More the here and now. How is our faith lived out, and is it alive enough to make us care? I don't know how many of you would admit to watching The Good Place, Uh, It was certainly a cleverly written show about the afterlife, an afterlife designed by broken people instead of a holy and compassionate God. And so in the concept of this was that there was a point system, and so so many good actions would give you would give you uh, green, which would be good points, but then negative actions would be red, and if they didn't even out, if you, were in the, if you were in the negative, you didn't make it into the good place. And what they discovered after a while was that no one had entered the good place in over 500 years, because now choices were more complex than they used to be. Uh, with globalization, with the implications of choices, nobody was able to make a good choice at all. Now, James is going to talk about the need for actions that accompany faith. Is this what he has in mind? The queen, her funeral last uh, Monday morning, uh, I watched it and was reminded of that famous promise she made as a 21-year-old then princess. My whole life will be devoted to your service. God help me. And her life was pledged to service of God 
expressed in service of her people. And the reality is that we can now see that she delivered on that promise. At her funeral, the, the minister who, the, who delivered the, the homily said, rarely has such a promise been so well kept. Her example was not set through her position, but through whom she followed. At her coronation, she knelt and she gave her allegiance to God before any person gave allegiance to her. Still quoting, her service to so many people had its foundation in her following Christ, God himself, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. She understood that to follow Jesus, to serve him, was to follow his example and live as he lived. We're in James chapter 1 and 2 today, so I encourage you to turn there to James chapter 1, and we're going to drop in at verse 26. And we find there a word that we might find not to be our favorite. If someone comes up to you and asks, are you religious? Is that a question you'd like to answer? The word feels kind of slimy or something. Religious. What is a religious person? And it's actually a very rare word in the Bible, only in this passage, to my knowledge. It speaks really only in a neutral way about the practices of faith. That could be prayer, it could be coming to church, it could be giving, uh, those uh, practices of faith, the outer ones, religion. But the dismay comes when someone's religion doesn't change their hearts. And on that, James and God would agree. So in 26, James writes, those who consider themselves religious but don't keep a tight rein in their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. Religious practice that doesn't influence action for good is worthless. It's empty and we're fooling ourselves. But in contrast, in verse 27 he writes, the religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. That is pure and unblemished in the sight of God. God our Father, in other words, the one who is the father of those folks who are in need. He cares deeply about them. They are objects of His special concern because that's the kind of Father God that he is. Well, let's look. James didn't just pull this out of the air. It's all through Scripture. In Deuteronomy, we read this. The Lord your God shows no partiality. James would have in mind the rich in his congregation. And very much at the time, it was thought that if you were rich, you had special favor with God. So in another part of his letter, he'll challenge the idea that a rich person comes through the door and the ushers bring them right up to the front row. Now, there's still a little room left in the front row. Nobody now wants to sit in the front, but back then you did because it showed your status and so the rich would be given the best seats and the poor maybe in the back somewhere. And James says that's not okay. This notion that somehow God's blessing is shown in, in riches still shows up in the church today through prosperity gospel teachings and so on. It's not 
how God sees it at all. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing, and you are to love those who are foreigners. This is God's character. Be like your father God. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the orphan. Plead the case of the widow, the refugee. This is God's heart. Now, if you say religion to a, to a Jewish person in, in James' day, he would have in mind sacrifices. You wanted to bring a, a lamb as a sacrifice to God. You'd be sure it was pure, that there was no blemish on it. It was supposed to be perfect, and you offered that. James is saying, well, it's like that, but when you offer your service to God, your religion, make sure it is pure and unblemished as well in the actions of love, because that's His actual standard. We, His children, should resemble Him. Isaiah writes, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, and take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Or in Proverbs, blessed is the one who is kind to the needy. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. The psalmist writes, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Now, please understand that when James talks about widows and orphans, he doesn't mean that's it. Once you've looked after widows and orphans, you're done. They're emblematic for any group that is open to exploitation the rich who abuse poor people, those in the margins of society. This is God's heart for the poor, for the marginalized, for the forgotten. Jesus told many parables, but only in one of them did he name a person. It's the peril of the rich man and Lazarus, not the Lazarus who rose from the dead, but Lazarus the poor man who sat outside the rich man's gate and watched as he gorged himself on fine food and he had nothing. That poor man has a name because God sees him as a human being. He's a person. His name is Lazarus. In the first century, widows and orphans had no means of support. Inheritances were often given to the sons. Perhaps in some cases, due to their Christian faith, these widows were being left out. But widows were left to beg or sell themselves to slavery. They were powerless. And these two groups represent those with the least rights, the least hope, the greatest vulnerability, the oppressed. And the Christians at the time were countercultural because they cared for these people. As a matter of fact, some Roman writers even mocked early Christians for they care for the poor. Why waste your time doing that? And James says that we are to visit widows and orphans. Now, that doesn't mean going over for tea. That might be a nice start. This visit is a deeper word than that. It's carefully inspecting 
with a view to finding out how best to help. This is what Kareen was talking about this morning. That's what care support ministry is about. It's about going, investigating, inspecting, and finding out how can we best help. That's visiting. It's a doctor's house call, personal contact. We received a phone call this week about our son, Mackenzie. Some of you know that he's had over the last three years some real challenges. There's some studies being done. We got a call from a specialist in Los Angeles that's doing cutting-edge research on this, and he spent a half an hour with us on the phone. We felt visited. That's the kind of thing that James is talking about. In their affliction, in their grief, in their vulnerability, weeping with those who weep. Now, I'm going to invite you to flip to chapter 2, and we're going to park there at verse 14 in a minute. But I do need to come to something first. And I don't want to get lost on this, but I can't not address it either. And that is the apparent contradiction between the writings of James and the writings of Paul. Paul writes, a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works. James, a person is considered righteous, justified, by what they do and not by faith alone. Oh my goodness, do we have a problem here? Is this a contradiction in the Scripture? Now, the assumption has sometimes been that Paul is really inspired and James is kind of inspired Scripture. That's not the case. All Scripture is inspired by God. James is not on the defensive here. Both are correct. Both are inspired. So what's going on? If a British person came to you this afternoon and said, hey, let's play a game of football, and you said, no, I'm not really into football, but I'd love to play soccer, you'd know you had a problem of communication, right? Football is soccer in every other place than North America. So there's a different way of using the terms. Okay, so a doctor, you might go to an appointment and the doctor might say to you, you need to eat more. You might go to a doctor or someone else would go, you need to eat less. Well, is this doctor making it up as he goes along? No, different patients, different issues, different advice. And so here we're seeing two separate issues being addressed. Pastor Dan talked last week about saving faith and living faith. Saving faith, by grace you're saved through faith, not of works. It's not about collecting and accumulating good points like on the good place. We're not three quarters saved by faith and then the other quarter we got to make up the difference by some good actions. But true living faith is demonstrated authenticated by the change it makes in me, my motivations, my actions, my attitudes, my behavior, my caring acts of kindness. Living faith speaks about how saving faith is worked into my daily life, into my relationships. So Paul is answering the question, how do you get saved? James is answering the question, what does a saved person look like? Justified is Paul's legal term 
for Christ's righteousness being credited to us by faith. But for James, justified means faith shown to be authentic as Christ's righteous life is reproduced in us. James is addressing someone who already claims to be justified by faith. But he's saying, wait a minute, has it resulted in action? And if not, is the faith real at all? We talk about integrity, and that means to be integrated, that our faith and our action are in sync. That's a healthy person. Paul was talking about um, those who believed that in addition to faith, you needed to be circumcised and follow Jewish dietary laws. And he says, no, those works are not going to save you. James addressing a different issue, people who were saying, oh, just believe the right things. It doesn't matter how you live. Paul is addressing the very moment of conception of salvation by faith alone. James talking about salvation's outworking. So we are saved not by good works, but we are saved for good works. James will talk about faith of various kinds. There is saving faith. There is dead faith. There is even demonic faith. So for James, works are the outpouring of Christian love, charity coming from a living relationship with a loving God. So though Martin Luther may have struggled with James, Paul, who knew and respected James, agreed. Paul writes, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Take every opportunity to do good to all people. We are God's workmanship created for good works in Christ. Work out your salvation like a tube of toothpaste. What God has worked in, you work that out. So don't miss this. James is calling us to radical obedience, to kindness in relationships, in particular to the marginalized, how we treat the most vulnerable among us those for whom we get no profit back by helping. So if I haven't lost you yet, if we're okay with James and Paul, they're good friends, let's jump in to verse 14 of chapter 2, okay? And he says, what good is it? My brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such faith save him? What a searching question to be asked. Maybe your neighbor comes to you and, and they know you're a person of faith or, or worse, a pastor, and they say to you, what good is your faith? They mean something like, does your faith make any practical difference? Is it any benefit to those around? Your family, is your workplace better because of your faith, your neighborhood? Is your faith seen in actions? James doesn't say, can faith save them? He says, can such faith save them? Faith that doesn't result in action. Can that kind of faith save? Is right doctrine enough? James would say, no. It's not enough to just believe the right things. By definition, saving faith is a faith that results in practical action. If not... It is without profit, dead, and worthless. So can faith save? No, that is, 
faith that hasn't entered the heart and infected my behavior. He bookends these verses with what good is it? What practical use is it? Because faith has a purpose. It's to make us like Christ. It's to make us kind and compassionate like He is. Literally, it's if a person keeps on claiming to have no faith, but keeps on having no actions. We're not talking about one bad day, but through the whole course of our life, if we continue to live without any intervention, any transformation by the Spirit, have we in fact been adopted at all into God's family? Talk is cheap. Believing stuff about God is not enough. James pushes on. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes or daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? What is the key word in the response of this person to this person without clothes and food? What's the key word? Go. In other words, stop being my problem. Go. I don't have time for you. Be warmed. You deal with it. Go get some clothes from someone else. God helps those who help themselves. It's, it's their fault. Somehow the choices they've made have led them to this problem. The disciples said this to Jesus once. After he'd taught thousands of people, it was getting late in the day, they came to him and they said, send the crowds away. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. It's this messiness of relationship when sometimes we're tired and we just want to say, could you just go away? John writes something very similar in his letter. This is love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That sounds good. We should do that. But then he gets so specific. And he says, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need and has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Offering empty words without any follow-through, that kind of faith is dead because it doesn't produce the intended results of true faith. James goes on in the same way. Faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. Well, you can see that. If you, if you say the words, be warm and well-fed to someone and don't do anything about it, your words have had no effect. They're still cold and hungry. Same with faith, without action. It has no effect. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. What the speaker is trying to do here is separate the two. You do you, I'll do me. You can be really into faith and I'll be really into works. The church actually has tried this for the last hundred years. hundred years or so ago, the big fundamentalist, modernist uh, controversy happened and the church kind of split into two pieces. And one group said, you know what? We're going to really do the spiritual gospel. We're going to preach that. Good. Another one over here that said, you know what? 
that's cool. What we're going to do is we're really going to care for people. The spiritual and the social gospel. The thing is, though, that those are like two halves of a pair of scissors where you need both. James says it's not about one or the other. It is both. You can't separate those things out. Someone says, well, I've lived the life even though I didn't believe it. No, you cannot separate them. They're entwined like body and soul, James will say. So he says back to this imaginary person, show me your faith without deeds, which you can't, and I will show you my faith by what I do. James is using sarcasm here. He's saying, how can you show me faith without acting? It's invisible. It can't be seen. Faith lives and shines through the actions that it generates. Faith is made visible by action. So James says, I will show you true faith by deeds. He goes on. You believe that there's one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You see, the demons knew precisely who Christ was. They were accurate. They could have passed a theology exam. A demon shouted out to Christ on one occasion, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. But their trembling in fear indicates the depth of their faith. They absolutely know and believe who God is. But it's not saving faith. It hasn't changed their character. James writing to a Jewish audience who every morning and evening would repeat, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh is our God. God is one, that core Jewish tenant. It's shorthand for a full orthodox faith. But here James is saying, yeah, but with sarcasm, what we believe is not enough on its own if it doesn't transform us. That's sobering for us here at Woodside because we, rightly so, put great value on studying the Bible. We want to know what it says. Good. But it must always move from head to heart. James goes on, you foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Important for us to understand here that James hasn't sort of lost his temper or something. This was a style of communication that his readers would have immediately understood as a, a diatribe. It was the way people talked and, and did debates in that day. And so they would set up a hypothetical opponent and then they would have an argument with them. So he's not calling his readers foolish, but he's saying to this hypothetical opponent, you're, you're hollow. Are you willing to learn it all? But I look at that and I think, that's a good question for me. Have I stopped learning? When we, we go on social media, we, we get kind of stuck in echo chambers. We talk to people who agree with us, and the algorithms continue to churn things towards us that affirm what we already believe. So am I willing to hear someone else and learn from them anymore? This is really wordplay. He says, do you want proof that faith without works doesn't work? So he says, well, let's talk about Abraham. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did 
when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. James here looks at the most revered figure in Judaism, Abraham, on that occasion when God said, look at the stars, look how numerous they are, that's going to be your descendants. And in that moment, Abraham believed, and we read that it was credited to him as righteousness. That's it. He did nothing. He just believed, and it was righteousness. But for Abraham, the journey of his life over the decades was an up and down of faith, sometimes showing great faith, sometimes a big D minus in faith, sleeping with his wife's slave, thinking that somehow he could hurry up God's plan that way, lying about Sarah's identity because he was scared various times. But he aced the final test as he was willing to offer his son, believing, as we read in Hebrews, that somehow God would bring him back to life, even though no resurrection had happened to that point. In other words, Abraham's whole life culminated in this climax of trust, and it demonstrated the faith that had saved him all those years before was authentic, and it was brought to completion. So James is saying those things work together. The Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, if I happen to come into possession of a famous painting, a Rembrandt or a Van Gogh or something like that, and I wasn't sure if it was real, I would take it and I would have it appraised. And if that appraiser looked at it and said, yeah, that, that's actually genuine. Now, he didn't make it genuine. He authenticated it. That's what works do. The works authenticate real faith. And so it says that Abraham was considered God's friend. So you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. That is, not the empty kind that doesn't show an action, or as Paul would say, faith expressing itself through love. About 20 years ago or so, we went to China to meet our daughter. And when we'd only known her as a nine-month-old, just for a few days, we went with our adoption group to a, a karaoke place, and uh, they served us, um, well, I won't tell you what they served us. It was very interesting food. But nonetheless, there was uh, some music playing, and uh, somebody put on Wonderful World. And so I, I took Juliana in my arms, and I danced with Juliana to Wonderful World. She didn't do much of the work on that occasion, I've got to tell you. I did all the dancing. A couple months ago, she was married. We danced father and daughter to What a Wonderful World. She danced with me on that occasion. Do you see what that says? Do you see what that pictures? The faith that is all of God. As we continue to walk in faith and that characters, we begin the dance of living the life of Jesus in relationship. We put into practice what is already there. In the same way we read, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to spies and sent them in a different direction? You think, James, why bring her up? Well, precisely because she is the most marginalized person he could imagine. Couldn't be more different than Abraham a Gentile 
an enemy, a woman, a person of questionable morals, but both her and Abraham showed hospitality. Patriarch and prostitute alike saw a need and met it and showed that their faith was genuine. No matter what she had done before, on that day she believed God and her faith was perfected in her actions. So with all of that, he says, as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. He says, you can't separate the body from the spirit and still be alive. You can't do that. It's just that indivisible. What turns intellectual, factual faith into living, saving faith? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the work of God in our lives. When I place my faith in Jesus Christ, God then has to do a work to change my heart. The truth that I believe has to invade my heart as His love is poured out by the Holy Spirit. I, I got to tell you, when I read these words, I don't know about you, but like my heart is like right out there on the table. I, I have to do some serious searching. Because I like to think that I'm a generous person. But to whom? Well, hopefully generous to family, uh, generous to friends, and then, oh, maybe Jesus, like he said in the Sermon on the Mount, would say, well, Gord, even unbelievers do that. Do I have that just go away feel when I drive down Victoria and I see the encampment there near the Via Station? Just go away. Somebody deal with those people. There's a church in downtown Kitchener, and there's a statue there, and it, it's, a, it's a man huddled over, and he's dressed poorly. And if you come up really close and look in the face, you see that it's Jesus. Jesus dressed as a homeless man. And I think, has it ever happened that I've actually helped someone, and it's been like entertaining an angel unawares? I have a dear friend. He's a pastor of a large church, successful senior pastor. But last month, he spent two nights sleeping in a homeless encampment because he just wanted to listen and hear and talk. I don't do that. God is so practical. Widows and orphans, as I said, it's shorthand for marginalized people. My daughter-in-law works, worked for years with homeless youth in Calgary. And I remember saying at, at their wedding a couple years ago when she married my son, this is a person who will not allow anyone to be marginalized. And I'm so challenged by that. Learned so much by that. Been disquieted by listening to her. We, we like to point out, with reason, that society and culture in many ways is going in a bad direction. But the fact is, if we're honest, we have to recognize as well that over the last decades, society has actually done some good things. 
it's become less tolerant of racism, of sexism. It's learned to treat people with disabilities better. It's challenged us as a church about what we think about people in the margins. I'm challenged by my daughter-in-law as she told me that when she worked with youth, at least 40% of those were LGBTQ individuals who had been kicked out of their families, religious families. I'm, I'm not okay with that. I hold a traditional view of what Scripture teaches, but I'm not okay with us treating people in the margins with hate. This is a challenge for me. My attitudes toward indigenous people, the poor, the barely housed. How do we hold our convictions of what the Bible say, says, but express it with kindness? This is hard. I'm talking about a non-political concern for justice. We've been cocooned in our homes until recently, and so we sort of became kind of a little insular, and now God's kind of calling us to open up our homes again, open up our hearts again. There is, yes, this spiritual and social gospel, and some groups have done well to try to do both things. I think the Salvation Army does a great job of trying to do both things. Samaritan's Purse, another great example. Compassion International, but I know another religious group that gets this and does it right. It's called you. It's Woodside. You do this. You care for special needs individuals. I think of Friendship Club. Your support of the Pregnancy Care Center means that those in vulnerable pregnancies are cared for. Some of you do ESL. Some of you work in the community making sure that births are safe. You give to benevolence. You take part in care support. You are generous, and your gifts allow the church to do ministry, the church. But more, you individually are the hands and feet of Jesus. And when you care for people in your community, you are doing it directly unto Jesus. Inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it unto me, Jesus said. When I first came to Woodside in 2015, so the Syrian refugee crisis was just happening, and I came up to Jeremy, and I sort of stammered through something about, oh, I wonder if Woodside would ever consider doing something for refugees. <laughs> he very kindly and graciously said, well, actually, we just had a family come last year, and uh, this year we're sponsoring this family, and then we've already got this other thing in the pipe, and that's coming. And <laughs> I realized, oh, you're doing it. Even now, some of you are housing refugees. You care. But I think, what about in our personal relationships? What about those that are marginalized even within our community? Perhaps someone who's divorced or single, a single parent, an immigrant, that person who just maybe socially doesn't quite fit what is our heart toward those who are marginalized? Those on the outside. Does your heart, like mine, need a checkup? 
so that our faith, which is so beautiful in this compassionate God who's been so kind to us, would be expressed in acts of kindness to those we meet. And have that conviction. Under my watch, nobody's going to be marginalized. May God help us to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the glorious gospel of love that's been given to us. Thank you, Lord, that you reached out to us when we were enemies, when we were outcasts with no hope. Lord Jesus, would you give us your heart? Would you soften our hearts and open our eyes and help us to weep with the things that make you weep? We pray this that our faith might be authenticated in our actions. In the name of Jesus, the compassionate one, we pray. Amen.